Welcome to the We Fucking Love Startups podcast. I'm your host, Troy Hammond. And on today's episode, we're chatting with Mark Vivian from Movac. Mark is off NZ1 from San Francisco into back into Wellington to talk to me about how they've raised $600 million through Movac and their funds and how they've gone about investing it. And what I'm hoping to do today is pull the kimono a little bit back on the VC funds and or talk to VCs about how they go about doing this. Like, what are they looking for? What can we get better at in terms of pitch decks? What, what do they really need to see? What's bullshit and what's real? And so Mark's a great guy. I really like and respect him. And I'm sure we're going to have a really good, robust conversation on this. And so I hope you enjoy it. And so this is your opportunity to jump on and subscribe now before we, we start the podcast. If you haven't, get back there and do it or do it afterwards. Promise me because we're blowing up now and I'm really enjoying seeing all these numbers and I'd love you to be on the bus with us. And so let's get ready to roll and let's do this. Kia ora. Thanks for tuning in to the We Fucking Love Startups podcast, brought to you by Talent Army. Because you're on a couple, of, you're on the board with some government stuff, aren't you? Or you're a yeah, yes, yeah. on the board of uh, New Zealand Green Investment Finance. We're providing um, uh, both debt and equity to uh, to businesses and opportunities that can reduce New Zealand's GHG profile. Yeah, uh, partnering with the with the private sector. So. You know, we've got a lot going on in that space. You know, there's a, uh, a government announcement yesterday. We've got another three hundred million dollars to, to to work with. Um, so, great validation of what we're doing. But I still, um, you know, it's a massive problem that we need to fix. Yeah, and I do think that uh, New Zealand's got a role to play. You know, quite clearly, there's some fantastic, innovative ideas and businesses. Not only in the uh, in the climate space, but generally, they just need uh, the right capital, the structure, support, and around them to 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 really smack it out of the park. And so when you say New Zealand's got a, a bigger role to play, do you mean New Zealand government or do you mean just New Zealand in general? I, th- I think you know, if we, we look back uh, across history and a whole bunch of different areas, we've been fantastic innovators. You know, we haven't been shy of, of having the, the, the first crack at things. Mm. And I think you know, we, we do like a challenge. We go about it in a, a different style to, say, our American Australian counterparts. But, um, I mean, give us a challenge. You know, Kiwis are pretty good at, at having a go. Yeah. It's funny. I, I mentioned to you off here before. I had a lunch with Ron Simpson the other day. Um, Fantastic guy. I love that guy's brain and how he chats. And, like, he was hilarious, right? So I sent him a a text and said, hey, man, when are you coming on the podcast? And he sent me probably a 1,000 words on why he would or wouldn't come on the (laughs) podcast. And he was like, what am I trying to sell? What's everyone trying to sell, actually, Troy? When someone comes on the podcast, what are they selling? Are they selling themselves out of obscurity? Are they selling their product? Are they selling their vision? Are they selling something? And I was like, well, everyone's kind of selling something, right? But a couple of things we talked about were, like – Early stage startups and that number eight wire methodology, like yep. is that holding us back, um, that number eight wire? And then the second thing was he doesn't believe tall poppy exists. He believes that um, we should remove that from a narrative. And so I disagreed with him on the tall poppy thing because I sort of see it a little bit firsthand. Um, but the number eight wire thing, I, I agree. Like we, it does hold us back a little bit with this ingenuity of just getting shit done in the early days. Yep. So, yeah, I do agree with that. I mean that – the tall poppy thing's really interesting. You know, I, I came back from the States uh, 2001, and I think, you know, for, for me, my perspective, you know, the tall poppy thing was really quite evident, and I do mm-hmm. think quite limiting. I think it's different now. I think it's the, uh, it's the fallen poppy, you know, the, the person that's tried and failed. You know, how do we treat those folks? You know, how do we build them back up again so they can go again, have another go? Um, also, if we're, if we're not treating those people who have failed in the right way, it is a really big hurdle or, or um, uh, put off for those people that do want to have a go. Yeah. So I think you know, that's the way that you know, that would be my two cents worth. Um, because I think if you look at the um, at the American mindset, as long as you succeed more times than you fail, you're a winner, right? Yeah. Well, you know, what's, what's your take as an investor, right? So like we, I've tried to remove the word failure from my vocabulary, right? And even on the podcast, I've tried to say attempt. You know, people have taken attempts because I'm trying mm. to get it to that, you know, like – in startups are attempts, right? And some you fail, like some you don't, but the attempts that you take bring you closer to something, right? It's a skill set of stacks, stack of skills that we're adding to our repertoire to move forward. Absolutely. Yeah, so, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's, there's also failures and successes within, um, you know, startup itself. You can have a series of chapters. Some were successful, some weren't. But as long as the, the end point or the final trajectory is upward and positive, you know, that's the, that's the, the, the net score, if you like. Mm. Um, and I do think that the way that we, the way that we treat people, you know, we started talking about politicians. 
we want the best people in the right place at the right time, right? So yeah. why would you want to, um, to, to to rag on people when you know they're taking up the the responsibility, the challenge? Um, wouldn't you want to support them along the way? Yeah, and that's you know that's how we think about it when we're looking at companies, you know, evaluating it. Troy, what he's got, what's the raw ingredients, where does he want to get to, what's the role that we play in terms of you know capital, connections, experience, what do we need to wrap around him as an entrepreneur to give him the best possible chance of success? Yeah, I, I 100% believe and agree with you. And so, and I think, I, like, I'll openly admit that it probably took me until having some success as a business owner to have an empathy for people that have been before me or after me and say, this shit's fucking hard, right? Yeah. And anyone that wants to have a go at it, I absolutely take my hat off to you because getting to a point where you can say, well, I've got some somewhat of a success now has been so many attempts and so much failure within that same company to get to that point from the, you know, from the end. And so, yeah, I definitely have a lot more empathy now, but I used to like, I remember like as a young recruiter, right? Like I'd be in group chats where we talk shit about some people, you know, like you need, or not, we'd not talk shit, but people text and go, oh, do you hear about so-and-so trying to do that thing? Yep. Oh, stupid, you know? And I'd be like, yeah, fucking stupid, stupid idea. Now I've like completely changed the narrative and I'll, I'll, I'll say, I might say, well, I wouldn't invest personally, but good luck to them. You know, I hope it succeeds, or, you know, wherever it may be. And Ab- so, Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's, there's two sides of the game, right? There's those people who are standing on the sideline watching the game and the people that were in the game. Mm. Only the people who are in the game knew what happened at that point in time, that key decision that needed to be made versus those people standing on the sideline commentating yeah. or prospecting. Yeah, as a coach of sports, you know, like that's pretty evident to me right now. I'm coaching my, t- my son's soccer team and I don't know nothing about soccer. I got roped into it because no one else wanted to do it. And all of a sudden, everyone on the sidelines screaming out what I should be doing. And I was like, where the fuck were you? And I said, I didn't want to coach. <laughs> <laughs> little Johnny, my little Johnny needs to come on now. Um, yeah. He's been sitting on the sideline for 10 minutes. What's the story, Troy? I know, yeah. He's the best yeah. player on the team, by the way. Yeah, everyone's the best player on the team, Absolutely. by the way. Absolutely. Yeah. Except for my son. <laughs> he's, he's great, but as the coach's son, you never get the right opportunity, do you? Exactly. As long as you don't give your son the Player of the Year award at the end of the year, you're fine. Yeah, yeah. I wish my dad did that because I was the Player of the Year in many respects. <laughs> but So as a as someone who, you know, invests, if so let's talk about this person, right? They, they probably had three attempts at a startup, at a SaaS startup. They might have got seed capital on three attempts. They might have had a go at it, but they just none took off for whatever reasons. How do you analyze the person and the attempts? Like, talk me through the process of what you're thinking. Well, I think there's two sides of it. You know, what are they trying to do with the next attempt? Mm-hmm. You know, how do they think through that? How would they um, structure and plan out that next journey? And as part of figuring out what that plan looks like, you know, understanding where they've been in the past, you know, yeah. what do they do wrong, what are those key decision points that they made, you know, if they had that chance again, how would they make them differently or would they make the same decision? So I think it's really un- important that, you know, to a degree, the, the, the founder, the leader, is somewhat self-reflective mm. to a point. Um, but, you know, we're, we're buying into, you know, what does the future look like? What's your role in that? And what's the solution you've got to attack the future? That's, yeah. that's the critical thing. Yeah. I think... Um, I might give you an example here, yeah. right? So Adam from WeWork, yes. all right, comes to you. He's WeWork's failed, the founder of WeWork. Is Adam something around the company? He's come to you and he's like... I've got this idea about property, which or whatever that thing that he's doing now, right? And he comes in and says, I want to pitch you. What talk me through what are you feeling before he comes in? Like what are you thinking? All right, oh I definitely need to talk to him about this. Oh, I think um, Adam, what was what was the story? Mm-hmm. How did you treat your investors? Talk to those investors. You know, I think the the way that treat people treat capital um, is pretty important when you're evaluating, you know, do we back them with more capital again? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you know, their story, their perspective, again, what would they do differently? That's what we would be digging into alongside Adam, you know, this new gig, you know, how you think about that, what's the size of the market, what's this, you know, the unique solution you've, you've got to take on this market, um, what's the sort of team that you need in and around you, would you bring some of the people from your WeWork days through, if so, why? I think you've got to come in with a fairly open mind but be um, uh, cognizant of what's happened in the past because I think, you know, the way that, Often the way that people have um, treated others in the past will be a good perspective on how you um, will be treated in the future. Mm. So I think if you want it to be um, uh, uh, an investment journey with not too many surprises, dig into that beforehand before you write that check because once you've written that check, it's hard to get that back. And you're, you're tied in together, right? It's, yeah. You know, a lot of these investment relationships will outlast marriages and other you know, personal relationships. Once you're in, you're in. It's really hard yeah. to get rid of one another. Do you take the social pressure of what people think about that founder into play? Is that something that you think about? No. 
Okay, good. No, no, I think um, everyone's got their own story. Um, I think you know we need to to back our own conviction and back the conviction of the founder. You know, this yeah. we're going to be working with one another in good times and bad for the next you know three, five, ten years. How is that going to play out? You know, I think one of the the popular criticisms of Movac as an investor is we're slow in making decisions. Mm. I think where we've written checks really quickly at scale, um, that's when it's come to, to, to bite us. We've discovered things about the founder, their plan that have been somewhat surprising to us. And this is going right back to the early days. Yeah. Well, let's go back uh, there, right? So let's yeah. tell me about the Movac story, right? How did that come to play? Um, season two. I've decided with season two, I'm trying to get the non-marketing PR yeah, version sure. of the story, right? So tell me the, like, the real story of how it all started, why it started, et cetera. Absolutely. Look, you go back 25 years ago, uh, you had three founders, uh, Mark, Phil, and Richard, a systems integration business. Um, uh, a couple of them had spun out of Deloitte's. They knew, um, they knew how to, uh, to build a services business. Uh, and that was um, you know, the, the, the origins of Movac. Trade Me was their first investment, so, wasn't it? Well, yeah. What happened was, you know, that uh, that business, the services business, was spitting off good cash. Yep. It gave them a, a pool of money to um, to invest in early stage companies. Going back in time, Sam was one of um, one of their employees. Was working with AMR. Um, uh, came to them one night with with an idea. This is what I've been working on, and the rest is history. So, you know, Trade Me was one of the first seed investments that uh, that those three made. Um, a couple of the others didn't go quite so well. You sort of think the return out of trade me at that point, they should have probably uh, stopped investing and moved on to, to, to something different. But what it did give the uh, those three was the capital and the enthusiasm to continue to, to double down. So the first two funds were really reinvesting the trade me proceeds back into, into new businesses. Uh, I got involved at the end of uh, the second fund. Um, so I lived next door to, to Phil. Mm-hmm. At that time, one of the trade me, uh, sorry, one of the, the Movac founders, and we didn't really know what, what one another did for probably the first year. And you know, the typical Kiwi thing, oh, good day, Phil, good day, Mark. Bit of chit-chat about the lawns and the weather and the hurricanes. Yeah. Um, it was only when we ran into one another uh, at a co-working space in Auckland. Um, you know, he looked at me through the glass, I looked at him through the glass, what are you doing here, what are you doing here? And we sort of got talking about, about what each of us was doing. And look, I was working for, uh, for Stephen Tindall at the time, Stephen Tindall and David Teese, around this idea called Kia, Kiwi mm-hmm. Expat Association. Mm-hmm. This idea we've got this massive diaspora offshore, but how connected are they with New Zealand and then can they provide some sort of economic benefit for businesses looking to scale offshore? And at that time, Phil and the, the Movac guys were really New Zealand orientated, reinvesting their own money, so it was quite, um, quite small, quite insular. So I got involved at the end of, uh, at the end of Fund 2 with the view that you know, Fund 3 would start to, um, to attract and invest uh, strangers' money, mm-hmm. so we'd become an institutional investor. Uh, and you know, bring my networks to bear on the organisation. Um, so at that point, we went out and uh, raised a forty-two million dollar fund. Uh, that was sort of a mix of both early and later stage venture investments, and the history sort of went from there. So over the the, uh, the years, we've raised, and at the end of the, the cap raise, we're just about to complete. It'll be six hundred and fifty million dollars of capital. We've backed around fifty-five companies so far, all Kiwi oriented or Kiwi-based companies. At the point that we invest awesome. uh, with. We're tech investors, and you can define tech in a whole bunch of ways, but we see tech as being, you know, providing some sort of competitive moat or competitive advantage yeah. in the market. Yeah, awesome. So if you, um, if you go back to your thinking right when you started at Kia, um, even before that, right, if you, did you, is this the career that you saw yourself in? No. What did you see yourself doing? I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, I, look, I really didn't know. I came out of university with a, a BCom in marketing, mm-hmm. um, sat through a couple of the graduate interviews, one with BP, one with ANZ. Um, I just did not connect with what they were um, talking about. I had no interest whatsoever. So, look, I saved some money from working at a ski shop, jumped on a plane and went to the UK. Um, I was working away in the, uh, the accounts department of um, St Thomas's Hospital in London, um, you know, a, uh, a princely, you know, 375 quid an hour, you know, loving life. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the recruiter that put me into that, uh, into that job said, Mark, um, I've got a funny feeling your career is not within uh, the accounts department at St Thomas's. Um, how about you jump on this side of the table and become a recruiter? And um, look, I loved it. I really, really enjoyed it. I think the... Um, That's the atypical story for how people get into recruitment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I sort of looked across the table and thought... Um, this guy looks like he's having fun. He's probably on more than three seventy-five an hour. Mm. Gets work with a whole bunch of different clients and different people. What could possibly go wrong? 
And it was the guy, the, the guy that gave me the chance is a guy by the name of Ben Anderson. Um, Isn't it funny how we always remember exactly who the person was that gave us opportunities in life? Yeah, absolutely. And look, Ben for me was always a mentor. He was, you know, I would say in, in the UK market, probably two to three years ahead of the trends. He was following the American trends and trying to bring those into the US. Mm. Uh, really enjoyed him, high energy guy. He, uh, in terms of um, completing the circle, he's now one of uh, our operating partners at Movac. He's just got a really good perspective on human capital and how we can um, basically get get the best out of people in yeah. terms of you know, leadership, um, both you know, team and personal. Mm. That's that's interesting, right? Because like I. Um I do a lot of work with VCs um, across Australia and New Zealand through via Talent Army, of course, right? Yeah. So they intro us into their investments so, or we um, work with them with a company Sprinkler, which does people experience. Mm. Um, and it's probably the most exciting time that I've seen over the last few years in terms of VC investment companies, PE firms, really going full front, like going full forward with people experience and it's exciting right to see how the human capital is taken now versus everything else absolutely i think um you know, for a long time look we were guilty of this is you know you think of um startups or businesses as functional areas you're not looking at the human perspective the human dynamic that sits behind those functional areas so what we did uh, as a business uh in our fourth fund was bring in um, both Ben and one of his partners, Alia, um, to really help us... Con- Who's Ben, sorry? So Ben Anderson, yep. um, uh, uh, the guy that I worked oh, from sorry, the UK, yeah. um, and Alia, one of his partners. Uh, you know, how, do we, how do we build that management capability, that management strength that often New Zealanders are criticised or New Zealand businesses are criticised for not having enough depth or enough capability? Uh, so this spent a lot of time with us, with our founders, trying to build up that that muscle strength, that core strength in terms of developing better people. Yeah, and I think you know that really came to bear for us when when COVID hit. You know, we had twenty five um, founders, CEOs of organisations looking at us for answers. You know, what do we do? And to be honest, we didn't have any answers either. It's like shit has hit the fan in a big way. Yeah, you know, global pandemic was always on the risk register. Just you know, minimal chance, massive impacts, so and no, no one really thought it through. It was Alia, um, and by way of background, Alia is um, she's got a PhD in resilience. She worked as an industrial psychologist for a number of years. She's also a trained SAS commando. Well, that's a fucking phenomenal background to get into a venture capital. Like, she yeah. she is fucking amazing because when you're dealing with life and death situations, as she's seen, thinks clearly. Thinks very, very clearly, very calmly, very, very simply, mm. and look. I can't, um, you know, what we saw with, with COVID with our business is nothing like war, but what we did have was 25 faces in a boxes, in, sorry, in boxes on a Zoom screen, wanting answers, wanting leadership, and Alia was an absolute game changer for us, just helping them think through their worries, their concerns, how do you deal with extreme uncertainty? And look, in the background, she doesn't know what's going to happen either, but she could give us and our founders the the structure by which they could actually think through, think things through in a really clear way. Mm. Um, so I think thinking about the human element to our businesses has been quite um, quite cleansing for us mm. in terms of acknowledging we we don't know what we don't know. Our teams, our leaders don't know what they don't know. How do we put them in the best position to upskill themselves as um, not only business people but also as um, humans, right? As humans, yeah, yeah. And it's obviously like commercially, right? It's a great opportunity to protect your investment if you're able to upskill people, EQ and IQ and everything, right? And so- yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think you know the the obvious thing is you know often the founder who's there on day one may not be there on you know, um, day ten thousand. Yeah. How do you? build them to be better through that journey to give them the best chance of being there at day 10,000. But if not, you know, plan B, plan C works out well for them as well. Yeah, it's really so. important. I think often you know, in our game it's all about the money. It's all about the investment. It's all about the return. It's all about the the hockey stick. Yeah. All of that is complete myth in yeah. my view. Well, I'm keen to get into that, right? Yeah. But before we do um, – if I'm listening to this podcast right now, I'm probably selfishly thinking, well, what did Alia tell them? You know, is there any key topics that you could share that you talked about or, you know, that help? Like PhD in resilience for me is just like, I want to talk to anyone that has that, right? So is there anything that you can pass on from that? 
it's okay to be worried. It's okay to not know what's going to happen in an hour's time or tomorrow. And she used this fantastic analogy of, you know, you're out in the water, you're surfing, you're body surfing, whatever it might be, um, and you hit, get hit by this rogue wave. So you're underwater, you don't know whether you're upside, uh, down, right side up, how deep you are, how shallow you are, but you've just got to relax. You've got to be in the moment, you know, be present in your mind to know that at some point you're going to come to the surface again. And I think, you know, for, for me and certainly for our folks on Zoom, that really, really resonated. It's mm. okay to be out of control completely. You've got no idea what's going to happen, but you know, clarity will come at some point in time. Yeah, well, that's a really, really good message for like anyone in any situation that's in high stress, right, is to just know that you're going to come to the surface soon. So use the most relaxed clarity that you can have so that you can decision make your way through it, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was in that moment that I genuinely thought we've got the right person on our team. Yeah. You know, this will be a game changer for us as an organisation, an, as an investment firm, but also for those leaders on this call. Yeah. Well, I think... Like I've seen a lot of highs in, in the sort of capital game over the last few years, right? There's lots of people popping up and I look at some of their experience and I think, I'm not sure what added value you're adding. Like you may learn a lot while you're there, right? But I don't know what you added value you're adding straight away. Like to hear her background straight away, I'm like, they're all the key things, right? Like all the key things, like resilience, psychology, like, you know, helping people through just like passion and people experience. These are the key things that startup founders need, right, is how to think their way through things, to know that it's going to be fucking tough, you know, and so keep trying. Exactly. And I think, you know, it's acknowledging the hard stuff, acknowledging the stress and the uncertainty, and that's all fine. It's all completely natural because I think, you know, in that moment of extreme stress and uncertainty and fear, you think, look, I'm the only person experiencing this. Yeah. Do you peep defenders? Do defenders come to you with their fears and concerns outside of COVID or are they, all right, he's, they're Movax, the money people, I'm not going to tell them, I'm scared that I'll alarm them. And so, and so, because my th- thinking on this is it's changed a little bit. We're being a little bit more vulnerable with people. We're trying to include our, you know, capital partners as, as more as much as we can, but still keep them at a little bit of a distance. Yeah, look, it's a real mix, to be honest, Troy. Um, you get people who enjoy sharing. That's part of who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, enjoy being you know, open and honest and potentially vulnerable um, with with investors or with you know, directors, uh, whoever might be involved. Right through to people you might work with them. Um, for five years and have no idea who they really are. Yeah. What do you prefer? Whatever the whatever that person's comfortable with. Yeah. Um, they don't need another friend. I don't need more friends. Um, yeah. So you need to know where that line is. But being open and honest and and sharing in a professional you know, business relationship, I think that's how I get the best out of people, and I think that, that's how people get the best out of me. Yeah. And uh, are, you, are you scared if they go quiet? Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And look, we um, I invested in. Uh, uh, and an entrepreneur, it was probably eight, nine years ago. And uh, before uh, before I wrote the check, I did some DD on, on him. And um, you know, one of the key things one of his previous bosses had said, when John, not his real name, um, gets into times of pressure and uncertainty, he goes quiet. He goes completely off the grid and he starts working 18, 20 hours a day in an unrelenting way. And identifying a way in which you can see those triggers and insert yourself into into his life uh, or into his you know, work day in a meaningful way is the best way to pull him out of that. Mm. And you know, when stuff got hard, that's exactly what happened to John. You could see it coming. And I think um, that was helpful for him. It was probably annoying um, annoying in some ways because you know typical founders think, I've got this, leave it to yeah. me. I'm the leader, I'm the founder. I've, I'm going to take this from day one to day 10,000. Um, Often they're an army of one in their own mind. Yeah. And you know, to your point, sharing that with a, a director or an advisor or a, an investor, for them it's, it's almost an admission of oh, yeah, I'm not right. bulletproof yeah. or I'm yeah. heading towards failure. And, um, yeah, it's, that can be really uncomfortable for people quite clearly mm. because I think you know, what, we, what I'd underappreciated when I first started in this is these founders have got so much wrapped up in this business. It's their identity, it's their wealth, opportunity cost of time, credibility, family. It's all that bundled into one thing. Mm. Um, so we do sit in quite a position of influence and power, however you want to define that. 
You've got to treat that really, really carefully. I'll never forget the guy, and I would have been on the job, I don't know, 18 months maybe, met, met an entrepreneur, and he'd been at, uh, at his gig for five years. And um, we talked about commitment. He said, look, I've so far I've lost my house, I've lost my wife and family, um, this is going to work. And it was really quite jarring to me at the time because – Did it work? No, it didn't. No. What the – just sitting sitting in my seat, I, I really felt like I, I could lead an investment case and get him some money, invest in the business to help him out, but we won't make money. Yeah. Um, the advice I gave to him was keep working on this, but go and get a day job. He'd, yeah. he'd literally gone down to you last few bucks in the bank account. It was – pretty um confronting for me yeah. yeah the 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 position or the seat that uh, that the vc sits on yeah yeah it's funny right because i as the recruiter people person right i i've worked with so many different startup founders now that people just think that i'm this natural knowledge bank of information that i'll have the answers to a lot of things and so founders that are too scared to come to people like you because of that um it's not not fear of failure but i think it's they are um What's the word I'm looking? What's the term I'm looking for? They're um, portraying, they're portraying that they're bigger than they are. I've forgotten the term. It's completely gone blank. But so they will come to me. They don't want to take the cape off. Yeah, exactly right. They'll come to me and they'll say, "Troy, fucking too scared to go to the VC. Too scared to ask anyone this. You've probably spoken to a thousand people. What's your thoughts on this?" And if I have some thoughts on it, I'll tell them. Most of the time, I'm like, "Look, I don't want to give you advice. I'm a recruiter. Like I've heard it a hundred times." But these are the two or three people that I think you should talk to, and I'll intro them to people to socialise their th- mm. thoughts and the and the likes. And so, yeah, it's it's a it's a tough, challenging situation. But there's a lot of times now where people come to me, and I get the same thing, right? So founders will come to me and say, "Hey, Troy, I've lost my house, I've lost my family, um, I can't get investment, but I need to hire. Can you find someone that can work for free for shares for me? And can you do it for free for shares for me?" And I found I'm at the position now where I'm like. Mark, we have to chat about this, mate. I can't help you going forward. You, I need to be really honest with you now and say that this is not going to work and you need to think about how you can keep it alive but bring in some money elsewhere, right, because you're going to lose more than, you know, this. And we've, you know, it's, it's a hard conversation to have, man. Absolutely. I think um, one of the great things about the sector on the, say, the last 15, 20 years is there's been more failures. So the entrepreneur is aware of what failure looks like and its different forms, and it's often it's it's a thing that happens, right? When, um, when does it first? When do you first see it and you go, "All right, shit, that's that's troublesome. We need to think about looking into that." Is there a point of um, tension that you think that's the point that I know that I need to either impact and help or worry? No, no. Um, there can be a range of different things. I think um, you know one of the things we used to see a lot was you had an early stage company that had signed a big deal or had a, a big deal drafted with a major corporate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's been negotiating for a long time. Then it starts to sit on legal or sit in procurement. And once the entrepreneur starts relying on hope, that's when you need to step in and, you know, what does plan B look like? You've got everything yeah. riding on this deal, you know, this – this is going to transform the business, but what if it doesn't? You know, what if you know, your sponsor within the organisation gets sacked or leaves? You know, what happens there? So I think you know, you know, that's just one example. Or you, know, you put all your um, resourcing into hiring this A-grade sales team or a couple of you know, key rainmakers in the US, and after six months you know, they've landed nothing. Yeah. You, you've deployed the funds, they've turned out to be absolute duds, there's no pipeline there, revenue hasn't moved. What do we do now? Yeah. Um, I think we've also got better at you know, putting more active directors on the boards that we're yeah, involved with. Yeah. Um, so it's not just us observing. You know, we're, we're with the team as well, and they um, they want to step in and help. Yeah. You know, they've been through this journey before, often as investors, directors, entrepreneurs in, in their own right. So you start to get a bit of pattern recognition, even in language that you know, your, your CEOs, your founders are using, yeah. um, and you want to preempt that stuff early. You know, oh, we want to. Um, we think we can raise capital in January of next year. Mm. Well, okay, that's fine. People go to the beach in early December. Mm. Just you know, we used to get caught out ourselves. You know, leaving capital raises too late, yeah. or relying on that uh, you know, that one enterprise deal to come through before the next capital raise. You can prove the model works. Mm. Um, so I think we're all getting better at it. And I think you know, going back to your point, 
I also think entrepreneurs are getting better at talking to one another as well and being more open around the challenges around you know, the business, key hires, their board, their investors. So it's not, it's far less adversarial now, I think, than when I got in the industry you know, 15 years ago. It's a different type of dynamic. Mm. Um, there's also, I think, a, an increasing maturity that it's the, the investor-entrepreneur relationship shouldn't be adversarial. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a journey, right? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, um, I was at old mate Peter from Icehouse, the CTO at Icehouse desk a couple of weeks ago when I was up in Auckland and he was showing me through all their dashboards and the knowledge that they have on founders and the likes. And I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking, how much, is it, how much information is too much information? How much is not enough? Where's the sweet spot? Is there? And it's interesting hearing your take because that's most people that I talk to's take. I don't know how much information is enough or too little because it's depending on the person and how we can help them or you know, vice versa. Yeah, look, I think... Um, it's, been, it's become apparent to me over the years, you know, that the, one of the key relationships you can have in an organisation is the relationship between the, the founder, the CEO, and the chair. Yeah. You know, you should, oh, my observation would be they have a far closer relationship on a bunch of different fronts compared to a entrepreneur um, investor or entrepreneur director yeah. investor um, relationship. So you don't think it should be the CEO and chair a la succession? Oh, look, it, it depends who's in the um, in the CEO seat at the time. Could mm. be the founder, could be uh, a new CEO, whoever it might be. But I think the person leading the organisation and the person leading the board need to be in absolute sync with one another. Yeah, cool. Hey, so people listening to this podcast are going to be thinking, all right, well, Troy, you've got this guy on the podcast that gives out lots of money. We said that $600 million. Is that like how much you've raised so far? Yeah. Yeah. Fucking awesome, mate. Thank you. you know, it's really fucking cool. Like it was, it was cool to hear about the latest fund. You know, is there is it like, is it going to be harder for folks to give out like to receive money? Because that's what people are telling me at the moment. It's challenging to get money now, etc. Yeah, look, it's absolutely different um, capital market to what it was twelve months ago, and I think that's a global thing. I think you'd had a lot of money in the system. Yeah, um, you'd had a lot of deals uh, that got funded. I think. Um, Moving forward, you can have just as much entrepreneurship and opportunity. There's just going to be a reduced amount of cash, both locally and offshore. Yeah. So investors, first and foremost, they think about how do I prop out and support our existing portfolio. Yeah. And then secondly, in terms of new deals, um, being that much more um, rigorous around due diligence, um, the the plan. When when you say yeah. rigorous around due diligence, what do you mean by that? Because you know, like a lot, I've been involved in startups where due diligence has been hilarious, right? Like they've oh. called me up and they're like, hey, Troy, have you got this? Have you got a document like this? We need it within three hours, you know. Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, to be frank on the investor side, with um, there have been investors that have been happy to do no due diligence yeah. at all. Um, that's not our style. What's the biggest thing you're looking for in DD? That's a great question. You know, I think if I break it down into um, team, um, a few different ways, team, uh, market, solution, then financials. Mm-hmm. So what does the team look like that you're backing? Um, what's the market they're looking to attack? And what's the solution they've got to attack that market? You know, yeah. you know generalising. And then what's the financial model that underpins that? You know, yeah. I think you know, moving forward, VCs worldwide are really realising that um, the unit economics of the, some of the businesses that we backed in the past just do not stack up, mm. Uber being a classic example. Now, that's only surviving because investors keep on tipping on money. Yeah. Um, so that's how we break down the due diligence that we do in terms of team. I'm thinking, you know, Troy as the founder, what do we need to pack in around him as an entrepreneur? What's he really good at? Look, he's a marketing guru, he's a sales guru. Yeah. What's the what support do we need to put in behind him to mop up the detail? Yeah. Or we have um, a product led CEO where they're relying on sales capability within the organisation to, to to grow the revenue. Yeah. So a whole bunch of different angles there. Um. The trick with due diligence is if you spend long enough in DD, you can talk yourself out of making the investment. Yeah. So there's a, a really sort of fine line between being really thorough and being overly um, thorough. Mm. But we want to make sure there's, uh, at the point we invest, there's no surprises you know, past that point that we could have actually found out about before we went in. Yeah. Interesting, right? Because I work with so many early stage startups that as a recruiter, you know, family-owned business here. I own, you know, I haven't got investment. I need to worry about who's going to pay my invoices, right? Yeah. So I have to do a little bit of DD on them myself, right, Absolutely. when I engage with them. And so it's the same things that I get through, right? So I'm looking at the people, you know, the scalability, their, like, their market strategy, you know, have they got any money in there at the moment, like a lot of these things. And then when I'm looking at the people, it's the same thing, right? I'm like, I'll say to the CEO, 
found out, okay, yeah, you've got these skill sets. Why why are you talking about these roles when I can see that there's a clear, you know, mis, misfit here? Like you need this person right, but you need a CTO right now. You need or you need this person right now. And so and it's depending on how they answer those questions that I want to engage with them going forward. I think you've touched on something really important. Um the way they answer questions and respond to challenge, I think, is a really good insight in terms of um, how they'll deal with their own employees, with their customers, and so forth. So, in your due diligence is part of the negotiation. You know, how does this person perform when we're throwing them a whole bunch of questions? You know, how do they think about um, different variables within the business? Mm-hmm. And that goes to the relationship building part of it. You know, we get um, back in the day, we get quite frustrated. Entrepreneur would walk in the room looking to raise capital for X, Y, Z. That's great, Troy. When do you need to raise by? Oh, end of next month. Okay, so you, not only do we need to come up with the speed with the business um, really, really quickly, but it doesn't give you much of an opportunity to develop that relationship either. Yeah. You know, we've we've spent a lot of time with companies and entrepreneurs. We've got the end of the process. And to be honest, we've sat across the uh, different sides of the table and said, I don't think we can work with one another. You know, you're a you're a certain type of entrepreneur that a, a formal board structure or a fund in behind you is just going to drive you insane. Yeah. Um, and I think you know, being able to walk away on the basis that, look, good luck to one another, um, but I don't think we can work together, is actually, um, I think, pretty mature. Yeah. There's one company, uh, South Island-based company, doing $25 million in revs. You know, we talk to them when they're doing you know, 10. Long conversation, but we got to the point, you know, we're going to drive each other insane. You don't need me or us on your back. Um, your best is a free spirit to go and do what you want to do, and your your strategy will be um, crafted almost month to month. Mm. What's the company that you fucked that up on, and you're like, ah, oh, fuck, I should have invested? Oh, look, um, we said no to zero twice, mm-hmm. and you know, I'd known Rod since uh, Surf Club days. One of my other partners was at school with Rod. Did you say no because you knew Rod from Surf Club days? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. It was, look, the the, the two reasons for us was um, we couldn't get excited about accounting software. Yeah. And the second thing was, so our compulsion to invest just wasn't there despite Rod's, you know, the energy and um, uniqueness of Rod. Uh, and the second part was we think there's gonna, this is going to require a huge amount of capital and running a fund of, back in those days, 12 million bucks, it just wasn't going to be a fit for us. Yeah. And look, I think what he's done has been transformational. Yeah. I mean, the other one that I said no to was, uh, was Pushpay. Yeah, and what I saw uh, at that point in time, the info that I had to work with, this is before they got into the re- religious giving space, um, yeah. I couldn't get there. And like, again, good luck to them, they proved me wrong. Yeah. Oh, I, um, to, to be honest, I exactly the same too for me, right? So... I knew Hamish Edwards really well. Yep. Um, we were neighbours in Noirapa. He was telling me about this zero thing, and I was like, it's never going to fucking take off. You're never going to get accountants to go to the cloud, right? You're never going to get them to share information. And yep. so I was like, oh, no, no, no way. Fucking phenomenal. Did really well. You know, I, th- I don't think they realised the challenge as well, yeah. but they pushed past it and did well. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the really key um, thing for us is, um, you know, when we say no to a potential investment is, Go for it. Prove us wrong. Yeah. You know, this is just our opinion on a certain given day or a certain point in time. Go for it. You know, keep us in, um, in the loop. Keep us updated. You know, we've invested yeah. in a number of companies that we've said, look, no, not yet. Keep us um, keep us updated. Why did you say no the second time? And, um, and I'm surprised that Rod came back to you the second time. I, I hear he's got a really great fuck you list. <laughs> <laughs> look, we may be on it now. I'm not sure. Yeah. Funnily enough, we've just invested alongside Rod at, uh, at Atomic. Yeah. Um, same reasons, to be honest. You know, we, we had a small fund at that point. It just it would have literally been betting the house and more on one company. And from a portfolio perspective, it makes no sense. Yeah. Um, yeah but you, you, you need, to a certain degree, you know, the um, – the entrepreneur to walk out the room going, fantastic, I'm going to prove you wrong. Mm. Absolutely brilliant, go for it. If that's what motivates you, fantastic. Um, and as I said, you know, we always keep the door open. If it's within our mandate, absolutely come back and talk to us again. And I think you know, some, of the, some of the best entrepreneurs in the ecosystem are the ones that have walked out of the room and have you know, every quarter sent us an update. Um, you know, Track Plus in Dunedin, you know, we, I followed that business for 10 years before we invested. Mm. The, the entrepreneur I referred to before, and for four years, every quarter he'd send me his update, you know, mm. good, bad, or otherwise. Got some good people going to that team recently too, mate. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it is a, a, a long-term game. It's not about the pitch or yeah. you know, the session with the IC. It's around, you know, multiple engagements over a, 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 a number of what 
over a period of time to develop that relationship. Look, I'm talking about the more mature companies yeah. that are requiring larger amounts of capital. The um, at the early part of the, the the market, you know, those pre-revenue companies, it's a far quicker cadence. Yeah. You know, it's really an idea on a piece of paper, smart team in behind uh, that okay. idea. Actually, can we stop, yeah. like, come put a pin in that for a second because I want to talk to that, right? Um, lots of folks have, we're in this really cool time. I loved, like, the GSC, lots of recession, recession, right? Lots of people starting companies because yep. they were like, I've got a new job, I might as well do this thing that's been burning away at me. Um, same thing, right, like Zero and a bunch of people have laid off a bunch of people yep. and so a bunch of people now are going into that, like, if I don't do this now, I'll never do it. And so we're going to see a lot of sprouts pop up in the ecosystem. Absolutely. The people that have done this, the people that have worked in Zero for like their most of their career or worked in a big corporate or worked in, they're sort of trying to get their head around, all right, how do I do this? How do I get investment? What do I need mm. to do? And so if you, Mark, were doing a startup right now because of that, talk me through the process that you would, how you would try and build the company to go out and get investment. Like what's, what's, what are the key things and the milestones and the things that you need to do? Bootstrapping it from day one? Yeah, and I shouldn't be saying this as an investor, but you know, if you can bootstrap yourself the whole way through, absolutely. It's, yeah. um, but you know, what I do on day one is go and talk to some others that have done it before. Mm. Um, I think you know, New Zealand, in my perspective, would be we're fantastic at sharing information. You, know, you can get a meeting or a coffee or a Zoom with anyone from you know, the, the PM down, essentially. Yeah. Um, so you... Rather than trying to craft your own plan, go and talk to those who have crafted a plan before. But I think you know, in order to to get the confidence of an investor, whether it be a, uh, a you know, friends and family, an angel, seed investor, whatever it might be, is put your thoughts down on a piece of paper and the plan and go and refine it. You know, every meeting you have, go and refine it or sense check it. So should they be asking for investment from friends and, like seed, friends no. and family while it's on paper? Uh, well, look. Or do they need to build it first? Is I guess what I'm trying to well, say. I think just giving confidence, you know, at each point that you're looking to raise capital, what you're going to achieve with that capital. Yep. So it could be going and raising a hundred thousand dollars to build a prototype, or it could mm. be raising a million dollars to hire your first um, uh, couple of external developers, or whatever it might be. But just bring the plan, gain the confidence of potential investors that you can execute with this plan to get you to a certain milestone in the future. At which point you'll need to raise more capital. Yeah. But all all the time have in mind what's the market that we're going after. Because often these markets all will move, they'll shift. Mm. There'll be different um uh different competitors, different technologies, different market dynamics going on all the time. So be mindful of that while you're crafting up you know, your solution to attack that market with. Yeah. Cool. But I think listening is really, really key. Really key. You know, the in my view, well, my perspective, the best entrepreneurs, the best sales folks even, they're fantastic listeners. They'll mm. pick up on some wordage or some themes or even body language. Right, I'm going to use that. Play it back. Play it yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, indeed. What, what, what's the fluff or the bullshit on a pitch deck? Oh, um, we've seen a fair few hockey sticks yeah. in our time. Yeah. Uh, we've seen trends and buzzwords. You know, AI, you know, clearly it's quite transformational, but... Plugging AI into a deck when it's got nothing to do with your business is pretty um, naive. Yeah. We've had it with you, know, big data, a whole bunch of other buzzwords that people have inserted in along the way. Yeah, so uh, just just get ChatGPT to write it. Don't actually put them on the document. Absolutely, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and then get your uh, your thirteen uh, year old child to uh, make sure that it can't be uh, yeah yeah found found out <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they've got the knowledge at school now. That's right. right. Yeah. Um, awesome. So what I guess like from what I'm going to try and ask, what I'm asking here is I get lots of people come to me, early stage founders, and they're scared. They're like, oh, you know, like I don't know how much I should invest. Should I get investment straight away? Should I get friends and family? And I'm, I'm always like, well, I say like as well, I'll do some investment mm-hmm. as well. And I do investing in my time, you know, recruiting someone and I don't want to waste either. And I'll say to them, well, look, I want to see that you've invested something in it, right? Mm-hmm. I want to see that you've invested sweat equity or whether you invest, put your own money in it because I want that um, commitment that you're in this um, and then I want to see the other people about their commitment as well, like those early stage people, right? Yep. And so because it's hard, right? Like trying to do a start is hard. You you have to sacrifice a salary if, you, you know, if you're starting and then you have to attract people that are going to come to you that might also want to, you know, remove something from their life, you know, whether it's security, safety, yeah. you know, money, et cetera. And so – 
it's it's much more beneficial for me um, as an investor or as a recruiter to see that they've invested them, they've gone a bit of a journey before and validated it a little bit before they've gone out seeking money. Because if they seek money straight away, you know, I'm a little bit concerned that they don't have that scar tissue in them. Yeah. Look, what I do, um, and we're seeing you know, a, a bunch of really good entrepreneurs do this, is go and talk to people when you're not raising money. Even if it's that, that first seed round, talk to some potential seed investors. Be really clear. Look, I'm not raising money, but what would I need to do to achieve, or you know, to to have you enthused about potentially you know seed round or a VC round or a PE round? So talk to the relevant investors before you actually need to engage with them, because they'll what we're saying before. You know, they'll give you some some really strong leads on what they need to see. Yeah. Um, you know, they want to see more opportunities. They want to invest in you, but give them the the evidence, the proof that um, by backing you, they can get um, what they're looking for. What, what's your take on loaning people money and or and, and like Tractor Ventures and stuff, what they're doing? What's what's your take on that? Oh, it depends on um, depends on the specifics of the business. You know, we, um, you know. Sounds like a no to me. Well, I, I don't want to give a blanket answer. You know, I think what, um, you know, what, what Tractor and you know, the likes of Kirsty are doing there, you know, it's fantastic stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, but, I, I wouldn't but. want to. No, I, I, I think a um, a high level comment um, may not may not be fair because mm-hmm. all companies are different. Yeah, you, know, you might be at a certain point whereby it makes no sense to raise a priced round, so a convertible note or venture debt or whatever else it might be makes makes sense in that moment. Yeah. And I think you know that that the best thing that for an entrepreneur is they have choices. Yeah. They have the ability to make the best choice at that, choice at that point in time. Yeah, I agree with you, man. I just wanted to make you sweat a little bit there. And get yeah, no, that, yeah. that's that's fine. Look, and um, given the change in capital markets, it'll be interesting to see how venture debt plays itself out in the next yeah. few years. Yeah, the only thing I have concern about with venture debt, right, is that you don't have that partner for the long term. You know, that is really going to be not just trying to get their money back in the inter- in the in the interim, but partnering you for for, the, for forever, right? And so, yeah, look, um, some of the terms that we've seen in venture debt from other partners. Um, no, not Tractor, have been really, really prohibitive mm. in that they almost want the business to fail to a point that they can um, exercise the, the terms in their um, their agreement for maximum benefit. Yeah. And I don't think that's a great place to be for anyone, right? Mm. You know, why would you want a, a, um, a capital partner that wants you to fail, essentially, or come yeah. very close to failing, um, not completely die, but they can extract you know, their, their full pound of flesh yeah. So in cases where we've looked at companies that have had venture debt in them, we've typically, typically come in and bought the venture debt out, debt out yeah. just to clean up the capital stack. Yeah, yeah, awesome. So talk to me about founders, right? So I'm particularly I'm interested to hear your take on on a founder. There, there is a um, it's a weird paradigm that we live in now where you've got your ramen founders that wear like that wear your hoodies, you know, or wear whatever they wear because they can't afford to buy clothes, you know, and they're just throwing everything into their company. You don't hear from them. They're all in a cave somewhere. They're working in a lounge room and the likes. And then you've got this modern founder now, which is like, you know, visual influencer online and the likes. Um, you know, we we had one in New Zealand, unfortunately, the guy that took his life that felt a lot of pressure with yeah. the Gucci loafers and all that sort of stuff, mm. right? And so you have these, you know, interesting polar opposites now. Like, is there an atypical person? No. What are you? What are the pros and cons of each? Uh, Apart from looking good in <laughs> shoes and clothes. Oh, look! I I think um, what's that person? What's that individual? What's their key strengths? You know how are they best placed to build that business to attack that opportunity, and they can wear you know Gucci's or bit. It's less about the clothes, more about the oh, but that know, co- yeah. But you know, often clothing will come through as a demonstration of their personality. Mm, true, and who they are. Mm. Um, and they might look. They might dress in a certain way on day one. Are they presenting themselves in a certain way on day five, day fifty, or whatever? So it's, it's around that authenticity. And I mm. think you know, what we've found often is um, people have this perception of going to pitch to VCs. You know, I need to wear the expensive watch and look the part, or I need to look like you know, Zuckerberg in a black hoodie. Mm. Um, be your authentic self, because yeah. that's who we're investing in. That's who we're going to be alongside. You know, in the uh, in the long term, through through good and bad, yeah. um, and then it also demonstrates in who they hire, you know, who they surround themselves with, you know, what types of people, what types of background, what does diversity look like, however you want to define it. But 
you're backing that credibility, that authenticity, because when shit really happens, that's what you're counting on in terms of personality and resilience to really push on. Yeah. How, how important um, is diversity? I and, think, and I'd prefer your like real answer on this. I know it's a political like, yeah. hand grenade that I'm throwing you right, but is there a difference between a female founder and a male founder? Absolutely. And what are the differences? Oh, I think there's, um, I think there's different styles. Yeah. I just think there's, um, you know, it can be diversity in terms of age as well. There's different styles. Yeah. I think yeah. there's no, and maybe I'm missing a trick here. I just don't. St- think and what I see, I can generalise too much. Yeah. You've got someone like um, Carmen at Velocity who is a force of nature. You know, yeah. Angie at Dexibit, absolute force of nature. I've seen other female founders who are relatively um, introverted, uh, introverted and uh, less energetic, mm. equally capable, e- equally, be, uh, equally backable, yeah. they just present themselves in a different way or you know, their, their personality demonstrates itself in a different way. Exactly the same with males. You know? yeah. Guy Horrocks from Solve, you know, before that Carnival Labs, you know, he is, as a presenter, one of the best pitches you've ever seen. He is open, engaging, energetic, insightful, um, compared to other, other entrepreneurs that, again, they demonstrate themselves in a different way. Look, that's a long-winded way of saying that diversity presents itself in a whole bunch of different ways. Mm. We have founders in their 50s. Yep. We have founders in their 20s. It's about buying into them, their story, how they've come to this point to identify this opportunity, that's what we're backing. Yeah. Look, I, um, in a pretty clumsy way, to be brutally honest, four years ago, there were four guys at Movac doing what we do. Now we have a team of soon to be 12 and we're 50-50 by gender. Yeah. I didn't go out seeking diversity. I went out seeking to hire the best people I could find in the market. What I did need to make sure of was my, my catch or my reach was as wide as possible to catch though, to catch people of um, different backgrounds and different perspectives, to make sure I can make the best possible hire. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I love that, mate. And I think diversity, the, the push for diversity and inclusion has helped us to remove our biases a little bit. To be able to say we might not have been like fishing from that big of a pond traditionally, right? You might have gone just to your your bros network because you had. Yeah, that feeling of trust and safety yep. right now, our feeling of trust and safety is an alarm bell to say, oh, actually, no, let's increase it and find and interview people that, you know, challenge our thought or we don't know and it's not the same people sitting around the table. And so I think, and to go back to your point, right, so you talked about a couple of folks, like a couple of people like Angie and co who mm. are go-getters and real opportunists. And I, and I often wonder is like, like the people that are my age or older, right, I'm 43, um, like I worry that female founders that are at my age or older have had to take on male traits to be successful and credible in business and because of their hard work of pushing forward and doing all this cool like fucking being aggressive and getting in Mm. there and saying well fuck you I don't care you know what the ratio is I'm going to get in there and do it anyway it's cleared the path a little bit for now for female founders now who can be you know a little bit more introverted or can be don't have to display, you know, male traits yeah. to be able to be successful. And so that's what I love about diversity now is that people can be anyone. They can be whoever the fuck they want and the product may be different because of the way they act. And so, Yeah, absolutely. And look, at the end of the day, um, we want to back the right person at the right time with the right opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I don't... I don't mark people up or down or otherwise in terms of personality. Yeah. I'm just thinking, you know, is this someone in in the fight that I think has got a better than even chance of winning? Yeah, and that awesome. goes to smarts, resilience, um, capability. Yeah, awesome, mate. Awesome. Hey, so what's um, we we used the last season? If you've heard the podcast, so I assume you've listened to a yeah, couple. Absolutely. You said I'd, I'd ask people what makes them happy. I'm not going to ask you that, right? The question I'm going to be asking this season now is. What's what's the one place someone should go to to upskill themselves, whether it be a person, a podcast, a newsletter, a blog, etc.? What's one place you would say everyone should go and look at this? Great question. Um, so we're going to pop this in the show notes below so that people can go off and, and seek it. Like there was a website you sent me actually when we were doing Discovery that I started reading and I'm fascinated by now. Prof Galloway? Yeah. Scott Galloway, unbelievable. Yeah. Um, Look, I'm probably late to the party here. I've been following and listening to him for probably, I don't know, 18 months, two years. I just think um, 
his brutal honesty and calling out of stuff um, in, a, a, in an industry that can get quite complicated if you think about investment. Mm. Um, I think that's a really, really good resource. Um, I am I'm mindful of providing a whole bunch of um, podcasts and websites that people go and you know, commit a whole bunch of time to. Because if, if I take a step back, I think the best learnings are from your peers. Mm. So if I was a founder starting a business, I'd go and talk to who have been the you know some of the um, successful entrepreneurs in my space or successful investors in my space. What can I go and learn from Joanne X or Bob D? That's where I'd be seeking learning over and above this information flow um, from the likes of you know, Galloway and others. Yep. The other thing I think we need to be really careful of is a lot of this content is originating out of the US. Mm. That's a certain type of ecosystem, a certain type of mindset. Pick out the nuggets, but don't become a disciple of it. Yeah, that's that's why everyone should listen to the We Fucking Love Startups podcast, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. And that's what we're trying to do is show Kiwi stories. And, yeah, um, because I think, you know, having just spent uh, uh, some time up in the US, it's a very, very specific ecosystem. You know, you've got a different... Um, it's really niche, right? So, like, if absolutely. you if you want to be, you know, if, you're, if you are doing pricing with your SaaS product, right, there is absolute pricing heroes that you can go and talk to. That's all they fucking do for yep. a job is pricing in that domain, like pricing in the transport and logistics SaaS space, Boom. right? And so... And you'll have a whole bunch of VCs that sit yep. around that space that are yep. absolute specialists. They have a a wall of analysts and investment managers that can produce you the best white papers or insights on pricing for that market in that territory. We don't have that here. No. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, It's a thing. It's a thing that we work with. We've got this ecosystem that we've created. Uh, It is unique. It has its strengths and weaknesses, but it is what it is. I do – and I had had a a lunch with one of our advisory uh, board members up in the valley. Uh, He's ex-Kleiner Perkins, Randy Commissar. Yeah. Talking about ecosystems, you know, don't fall into the trap of trying to create someone else's someone else's ecosystem in this one, yeah. or replicate or mirror. Take some of the good things or some of the learnings, refine, but don't try and change or or um, overlay. Yeah. So I think you know, one of the big challenges we have with um, with entrepreneurs, you know, it's hard enough anyway. Let alone when you listen to this wall of information through podcasts and other sources that, unless you're growing three hundred percent a quarter, you're not going to chin the bar. Yeah. A lot of it's just delusional bullshit. Yeah, I, I, I think that's good. Great, great advice, man. And it's pretty demoralising too, right? You know, we have it from our own perspective. You know, we're, we've just raised a two hundred million dollar fund in a in a world where you know, our counterparts are raising two billion dollar funds. Yeah. So what? Easy to feel insignificant or irrelevant or or not as relevant, but it's different ecosystem, uh, different mindset, different expectations. You know, you got to live in the the, the the place that you're operating. Awesome. So you, um, good advice. So you, if you left Movag tomorrow and you're building your own product, right, whatever it may be, hypothetically, um, who are the people that your peers that you'd want to go and talk to? Like who are the people that you go, oh, they really impressed me? Uh, <laughs> I'm doing this for two reasons. This, this probably defines the, uh, the, the nature of the village that we, that we operate in, but probably someone like Serge Van Dam. Yep. who's my brother-in-law, yep. as a disclaimer. But I think Serge, Serge's perspectives are often you know, brutally honest, really insightful, uh, and normally right, yeah. which is quite annoying as a brother-in-law. Um, he also gives a shit. So I think you know, you, we need to be really careful about opinions and views. They need to come from the right place, but also a place from uh, a place of well intent or, mm. or sorry good intent but also experience mm. you know, everyone can opine on everything but you need to get it from a, a trusted insightful experience source so someone like um someone like serge you know ticks the the the, the bill for me yeah um well, let's get let's get the fuck out away from the family now though mate like let's have a unsafe person is there anyone out there that you're like Ron? super impressive Ron simpson yep um Mind you, I agree. That's the reason why I got Serge on the podcast number one episode, right, is completely for exactly what you said. I knew that I'd get the real story with some great lessons and some really good strategic thinking around startups. Yep. So I completely agree with you, by the way. Yeah, I think um, Rowan. Rowan's a contrarian, as we all know. I think he's a contrarian thinker, but he's again, he's well thought. He thinks through things really, really well. Um, he's a good um, human side to him as well. He has a really empathetic... You know, smart, clever, experienced guy. Yeah. Um, 
Who would the third be? I think the, the just just on Rowan. Yeah, we talked about this before, right? Rowan, I said I sent Rowan a text. He sent me like a whole three paragraphs on why he may or may not come on. But one of the things he said to me before he comes on is he needs to think about what is he selling. Mm. And so he te- he said, and then we caught up for lunch actually, and um, had a really lovely lunch and debated lots of things. And he said to me. What are people actually selling on your podcast, Troy? What are they selling? And I was like, well, and I gave him a few variations mm. on what I think they're selling. What are, you, what are you selling on this podcast? Like what's what's your stance on it? A VC's perspective. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? Uh, how you engage with the VC, what they're thinking about when they invest in you, what they do after they've invested, what they're seeking. Yeah. Is that to make you more approachable or is that to send the elevator of information back down for people to learn? Both. Yeah, cool. Both. You know, I... I'm more than happy to take meetings with um, wannabe entrepreneurs, early stage entrepreneurs, late stage entrepreneurs. I go back to what we were saying before, the person that's giving it a crack. You can always be that timid person on the sideline, commentating, criticising, yeah. but you want to be the, the person or back the person that walks across the white line and has a go. Yeah, awesome. Um, and look, we, you know, for years we were sponsors of the Young Enterprise Trust, you know, basically putting um, entrepreneurship courses through New Zealand schools. We spent a whole bunch of time and money on that because we knew it was good for the ecosystem and at some point it produced entrepreneurs we can go on and back later on. Yeah, awesome. Great, mate. I appreciate that. And the third person, I cut you off, sorry. Uh, an industry specialist, mm-hmm. someone who I don't know now but is an expert in the industry that I'm looking to go into. Um, they can help sanity check what I'm doing uh, and they're easily accessible and available as well. Mm-hmm. But you really need to... You know, you've got a perspective of one at that point in time. How do you build out... Um, a series of perspectives to become, you know, your plan becomes insightful, then actionable. Yeah, cool. Awesome, mate. Hey, I appreciate your, your honesty there, mate. It's yeah. good. Um, and so now that we're sort of getting to the end of the podcast, with Movac, right, why, what, how would we sell Movac? So what would people, why should people come and approach Movac if they're looking to raise capital? Uh, look, great question. I think it's a, a question that uh, I've had to answer to potential investors over the last year. Uh, six months as we're raising the, the the most recent fund. I think if you think about it in terms of um, three areas, capital, quite clearly, um, capability, and that we've been doing this for a, a good amount of time. We've got plenty of expensive scar tissue that we want to um, yeah. uh, uh, to, to, to utilise, and also networks and connections. You know, we how can we be an expert on wireless power or uh, or EV charging or um, you know some of the more you know deep science plays that or deep tech plays that we're investing in. So we may not know, but we know people that can go and uh, can be pointed to to go and find the answers. Yeah. So I think you know the the idea that the VC is more than just capital is really really important to us um, because the the capital gets you and the entrepreneur to the start line. It's what happens after that that uh, you're really measured on. Yeah. Awesome. I've got a um, funny feeling you may be inundated with people sending you the result, results every quarter off the back of this podcast. Yeah. Fantastic. Look, yeah. absolutely. It goes to what I was saying before. We want to open the funnel as wide as possible. And I think yeah. the key thing for us, you know, we think um, one of our guiding lights without selling too um, uh, up ourselves is you know, we want to create you know, wealth and high-value jobs for New Zealanders. Mm. You know, the idea of um, us being able to support or create an ecosystem whereby we are spitting out the push pays, you know, the the the, the zeros of this world, uh, you know, the power by proxies, the vens. He says name dropping some of his portfolio companies in the, the later part of that. That's really critically important because, yeah. a, it's good for us as a community, as a society. But b, fuck, we can do it. We've proven we can do it. You know, for a long time, the idea of, you know, a, a billion dollar company being found in Wellington at the other side of the planet compared to where its potential customers are going to be, you, you know, you wouldn't dream about it. You wouldn't have even, you know. Uh, uh, vocalised it until yeah. someone did. Yeah, now awesome. the clock speed's speeding up. Young entrepreneurs are thinking, shit, well, you know, if Rod and others are doing it, why can't we do it? I want to come out of school and create my own company. Mm. I don't want to go and do a graduate role at BP or ANZ uh, or go and you know, waste my life in a consulting firm. I want to go and create a business mm. and take on a massive opportunity. Boom. Go for it. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Don't waste your time getting a BCom or something at the university, right? (laughs) Do that. (laughs) Awesome, mate. Hey, so last final question to you. Who's the guest that you would love to see on the podcast? Uh, Look, there's a couple. I think um, Stephen Tyndall has a great story to tell Mm. from his perspective around thinking really long term. How do you transform an industry? Uh, for for long term betterment, 
Um, you know, we've I had the benefit of working for Stephen a long time ago. Yeah. I think his insights are really, really important. I've tried to get him, so I'm going to hit you up as a, a referral after this. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. Um, one of our advisors, and he's been a long-term uh, mentor of mine, uh, David Teese, yeah. uh, business professor at Berkeley, um, is also the founder and chair of uh, BRG, which is a consulting group turns over a billion dollars US. Yeah. He described himself as a boy from Blenheim who tried hard. Amazing thinker in areas of um, management capability and intellectual property. So just folks like Stephen and David, they think big. Yeah. They think really big. They don't worry about you know the naysayers and the 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 the, the grief seekers. They think, boom, I'm going to go after this. It may take me five years, ten years, twenty years, but I'm going to go after it. I think those people that transform industries and create ambition, um, I think they're critically important. We can get them on this podcast, I don't know, but it's worth a go. Yeah, yeah, look, I've never been one not to try, so I appreciate that, mate. Thank you. Hey, mate, well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm not Pleasure. sure how much jet lag you had to push through this morning to come on after jumping on the NZ1 to get back here for my podcast, of course. Oh, one above helps. Yeah, thank so, you. Uh, thank you so much, mate. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed this one. It was a great chat. Pleasure. Cheers, Ryan. Cheers, mate. That was awesome, Mark. I really appreciate you coming in. Uh, that was such a cool podcast. And one thing that I really took away is that that message in COVID, you're underwater, you don't know where you are, you don't know which way is up, you don't know when you're going to get to the, you know, get to the surface because you're so freaked out and to just try and calm down, slow yourself down and think your way out of it was such a pertinent message. And so like, it's really important to me that VCs and PEs and, you know, like everyone is actually taking a people approach to their businesses these days and not just a venture and capital approach. And I felt like that was really pertinent and relevant with Mark. It was great for the commander to come back and hear what's happening behind him or to hear what's happening in the business, what they're doing, how they're doing it. And I hope you really got a few takeaways from that. So thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for all of our subscribers. Our subscribers are nearing a big point that I really want to announce. And so jump on there and do it now if you haven't so that I can announce that and and be like every other podcaster and YouTuber and, you know, celebrating the success of that. So thank you so much. Until next time. This podcast is produced by John Otaka from Empire Films.